you know, you shouldn't be looking for these innovative business ideas necessarily. That a lot of times the best business idea is actually transferring your own skills that you have already validated in the real world and turning that into a business. This is Chris Reynolds and welcome to the Entrepreneur House podcast. The Entrepreneur House is a business accelerator for established entrepreneurs creating events and retreats all over the world. If you're ready to take your business to the next level with other successful entrepreneurs, be sure to apply at theentrepreneurhouse.com. And now on to today's episode. Today, listeners, we have a friend and another seven-figure location-independent entrepreneur joining us from Austin, Texas. His name is Andres Zuleta, and he's the founder of Boutique Japan, a high-end luxury and travel service that creates amazing trips and experiences for travelers in Japan. Today, we dig into Andreas' experience starting a couple failed businesses and returning to the 9-to-5 life afterwards. Andreas shares about the moment when he realized that he can no longer work for somebody else and made the leap as an entrepreneur. He also shares about the simple tactics regarding content and SEO he used and continues to use to grow Boutique Japan into the incredible business that it is today. Welcome, Andreas, to the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, man. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for joining us live from Austin, Texas. You're literally on the other side of the world from me. That's correct. You're on the other side of the world from me. I still think it's amazing. Like Even when I was a kid, to talk to people on the other side of the planet was like a really hard thing to do. You too, I imagine. And, and nowadays, we just hop on a call, right? It's easy. So strange. That's right. That's yeah. right. I think if you dug a hole from Austin, Texas, you'd land right in Chiang Mai, Thailand, where I am. I think they're inverted. Yeah, I think exactly. <laughs> they complement one another. Definitely, without a doubt. So welcome to the show, buddy. So happy that you have joined us. And uh, we had a bit of challenge getting you on the show because I got sick and then you got busy and then something else happened. But a couple months later, and then we saw each other in Bangkok, but then a couple months later, we finally found some time for each other. So... Glad you're here, my friend. I want to talk about you today. I've heard your story before, and I think it's really cool. And um, I love some of the tactics that you're doing, especially for a service-based events business. And so we want to dig into that. But let's start with you and how you started and how you became the entrepreneur that you are today. Well, yes. I mean, that's a, that's kind of a long and... Kind of a random story. I, I definitely <laughs> wasn't born. I definitely wasn't born as an entrepreneur. I think you know I wasn't one of those kids that. The example I always think of is you know the kids that made made a bunch of money you know starting a lawn mowing business or mm. or selling baseball cards or you know one of those things. I, I didn't do any of that. I was just like studying really hard. <laughs> <laughs> kind of a kind of a nerd. Um, you know, doing Legos and and collecting baseball cards, but not making them making money. Um, you know, long story short, and I'm happy to get into any details about it, but long story short, I just, I couldn't find a company where I was happy working, not mm. as the boss. That happens to us. And, and so when was this, when you realized that, okay, I've got to do something different? Well... You know, I was working at a great company in, in the San Diego area, and it was a travel company, and I got to go on free trips once in a while, and it was a fun job and, you know, cool people and actually pretty good money as well. And, you know, one year I got to go to Galapagos on a trip for free, and that was research, and another year I got to go to Japan, and that was research. 
church. And so in so many ways, it was such a great job, but I, I just couldn't, couldn't be granted the freedom that I wanted to just do my job as well as I could. So I actually was, I, you know, I was the top producer um, in terms of just kind of production and revenue for the company. And all I was asking for was, you know, let me work from home sometimes or, you know, <laughs> let me kind of just make my own schedule a little bit. And eventually they they did give me more flexibility, but it was such a struggle that it just really forced me to kind of think about what I wanted to do. So that's when I really started looking at other options. So, okay, let's go back to that job. What do you think made you a top producer for the company, Andres? Gosh, I don't know. I mean, you know, when I started that job, I'd never had a sales role in my life. And actually, I, you know, I actually had a bad image of sales. I, you know, I was, you know, it's a myth, you know, that people right. who don't really know what sales is, it's very common misconception to think like, oh, sales is something that's just, you know, kind of icky or whatever. Right. Or, you know, or unethical or something, you know, so I just had that misconception. So, I only fell into this sales role because I really wanted to work for this travel company and the position they had was a sales role. So I was like, well, I'll do whatever it takes to get my foot in the door. Why did I, why was I the top producer? I honestly don't even know. I think I like to, I think my sales tactic is what I, something I call killing it softly. Mm -hmm. And what that means is just listening to people and, you know, not being pushy at all mm -hmm. and trying to really figure out what people are saying or what they're not saying. And but then at the same time, being assertive as a salesperson and, you know, actually closing sales, <laughs> which is a great thing. <laughs> um, so the the skills that you learn in that job, are you um, I imagine that you apply those in your sales and your sales department nowadays? Well, yeah, I mean, basically, absolutely. Um, you know, I'm still learning how to be a sales manager uh -huh. and how to train a sales team. You know, I have a great team of people. Um, we're still building up our sales team. It's still very small. Um, and, I, you know, I think a new skill for me that I'm working on developing now is actually how to be a sales manager and a sales trainer. You know, I think those are very different skills from actually, you know, working with clients directly. Um, so, I mean, yes, for for sure, you know, a lot of what I learned at the other company was directly transferable, especially when I was the only salesperson. Um, but now as we're growing, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm having to learn, you know, completely different skills, I think, um, and it's great. It's interesting, but you know, it's definitely not not always easy. When was the moment when you realized, Andreas, that you had to leave your job, which you were a top producer at? And well, you talked about realizing that you couldn't have your own schedule, but when did you realize that okay, I've got to start something on my own? I think that it was a bit of a gradual process, but I, you know, I hate for this to be such a cliche, but it was, I, I just remember, you know, it was a, it was a weekend and I was at Barnes and Noble with my girlfriend and, 
And, you know, I guess we did this sometimes, just went to Barnes & Noble and just kind of looked at books or magazines and, and got a coffee. Mm-hmm. And, I do that. I do that all the time. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, I hate to say it, but I saw this book, The 4-Hour Workweek. <laughs> <laughs> and I started reading it and immediately, you know, within a few pages, I was like, I have to buy this book. Right. And so I read it five or ten times. And after reading that a couple of times, it's hard to not want to just start a business, basically. And did you start? Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I was just going to ask, like, after, I think I read it four times. And then I believe I listened to the audio like 12 times. And then I started applying all the methods using it as a study guide. And I'm curious if you did the same or how that unfolded for you. You know, it, it was quite an effort to think of what what the business was going to be. Uh-huh. You know, I, I don't know if you can relate, but I struggled a lot just trying to come up with different business ideas. Yeah. And my first business idea, well, the first one I really pursued was this Japanese flashcards idea, like okay. Japanese travel flashcards. And I struggled with this for a long time. I spoke with factories all over the world. I was going to make these printed flashcards, like on kind of like on um, playing card material. Mm-hmm. And because I have a, I, I think one, I think I thought of one of my talents as the Japanese language and, and having like a really solid understanding of also travel and what travelers need. So I was trying to put those two things together. Um, and so anyway, so I started an LLC in California Ooh. And anyway, well, I know, long story short, you know, the company lost money. Nothing happened. Zero sales. We only lost money because we paid taxes to California. Yeah. Even though we had made no money. <laughs> so silly. <laughs> um, the, the cool thing about that story, the silver lining, is that we now have those flashcards and we, we give them to our clients um, as, a, as a PDF. Um, and they're beautiful, actually. We worked with a really awesome designer. Oh, nice. Do you get good feedback from the flashcards still with your clients? We get great feedback, man. Actually, just yesterday, uh, I, I was talking with a friend who runs a travel company, and he's working with kind of a VIP client. He works at a huge Silicon Valley company, and, and we sent them the flashcards, and he was like, man, those are really nice flashcards. They ever say, like, you should sell these. Like, these are, these are a good product. <laughs> Oh, no, no, we'll never sell them. That's hilarious. Yeah. You, I think also too, you, you tried to start a surf company once upon a time. Was that before you quit your job or was that afterwards? Yeah, that was also, that was before that was, so that was the first failed company I had and nothing happened with that one either. Uh huh. Yeah. That was, um, the idea was to help Japanese surfers who are visiting California or Mexico to kind of plan their surf trip or help them kind of with kind of navigating the scene. So, you know, helping them find restaurants, hotels, rental cars, et cetera. Right. That sounds like a good business. What happened? So, well, first of all, I didn't know what I was doing and I had no idea how to start a company. Um, second of all, I didn't know how to do market research, but, I figured out that, you know, I should talk to some Japanese surfers and see what they needed. So I took this guy out to Pizza Port in San Diego to get pizza and beer, this Japanese surfer guy. 
and I, I had a questionnaire for him. And after reviewing my notes from the conversation, it just it was so obvious. Like this is not a good business idea. <laughs> the whole the whole point of a Japanese surfer's life and any surfer's life is to spend as little money as possible. Yeah, and surf as much as possible. That makes so, sense. So. I actually spent months on that business. That was many years actually before. And uh, yeah, you know what's interesting is that I actually tried to start that business, but I didn't think of myself as an entrepreneur at the time. Yeah. And I quickly forgot that I wanted to start a business and ended up going to work for the other travel company and completely forgot that I even wanted my own company. So so now I think you started, now you're running Boutique Japan which is having a lot of success these days. And you did you start it in 2013? Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Cool. And tell us how this, this business came about. Tell us a little bit more about the details of it too. So the gist of what the company is, is we are a luxury tour operator. By tour, I don't mean a typical tour. We put together uh, tailor-made private trips for people Usually kind of the average trip length is around two weeks. And we, we make all the arrangements for p- people on a custom basis. So, you know, we put the entire trip together, all their accommodations, experiences, guides, you know, transport within the country, et cetera. I can, I can talk more about that in a second. But the reason, the way it came about was it was kind of, it was, it was an obvious business idea that I had overlooked for a really long time. So the whole four-hour work week thing, I was looking for something novel, something unique, something kind of, I don't know, something kind of fascinating and just, you know, something scalable, something digital. And one day I was actually listening to a podcast, The Tropical MBA, which I know you know. Mm-hmm. And the podcast topic somehow touched on the fact that you know, you shouldn't be looking for these innovative business ideas necessarily. That a lot of times the best business idea is actually transferring your own skills that you have already validated in the real world and turning that into a business. And so as I sat in my car listening to this, it was a very easy kind of mental equation. I was like, well, what am I actually paid for now? I'm currently paid for speaking to potential travelers, qualifying them, designing trips for them, and then arranging their trips. And I'm being paid pretty well, and I'm, I'm really good at it. So from there, it wasn't a huge mental leap to be like, well, maybe I should you know, have a company that does that. That's really great thinking, because I think when a lot of people imagine starting a business, their thought process is I need these, this skill, this skill, this skill, this skill, this skill. And then they're overwhelmed by it. And they're thinking to themselves, how can I actually do this? Whereas your logic is very practical. What am I great at now? And how can I apply it so people pay me? I feel very lucky because it just made so much sense. So it seemed very obvious at that moment. I mean, I'd certainly had had people, I, I still remember I'd had friends, for example, tell me, oh, you should start like a Japanese travel agency or something like that. <laughs> you know, people had been saying that to me for years, actually, but I always thought, man, no, me? Like, I can't start a company, you know? Like, that seems really complicated. So I definitely had um, some misguided beliefs about how 
like who can start a company and how difficult it is to start a company and how intimidating it is to start a company. Right. Um, but then once I had the realization that might be a good way to go, I realized very quickly that because of my skill set of knowing the travel industry and also knowing Japan extremely well, I kind of got this almost irrational but kind of rational confidence that, you know what, I could actually probably be really, really good at this because I'm already good at my job and I know the subject matter extremely well. So, you know, you know, I kind of had to ask people, you know, am I, am I being overconfident or does this (laughs) seem like a really good fit? And I actually, this is a funny story, but you might know John Lee Dumas of um, Entrepreneur on Fire. Yeah. And it was around this time that I was living in San Diego and he had just moved to San Diego and we were having coffee one morning. Um, And I actually, it was the first time I'd ever met him, but I was telling him about this and I said, you know, John, like, I don't mean to sound you know, boastful, but I actually think that I could be, you know, the best in the world at this or one of the best in the world, you know, if I really kind of worked hard at it. Yeah. He said, yeah, I don't see any reason why not. You know, of course, John would say that, but it was true. (laughs) That's awesome. You know, I'm not saying I'm the, you know, I'm not saying, I'm not trying to say that I'm the best in the world, but, you know, I really, I guess I saw that it was an interesting niche and there wasn't really anyone doing things the way that i was envisioning doing them have you been on a show and told him that story no i haven't uh he needs to have you on the show that's a great story man (laughs) so you started out in 2013 so you're four years old and excuse me your business is four years old and you had quite a bit of i would say would you call it rapid success? Um, I would say it doesn't feel rapid to me, but no, because you put all the work really in. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, you I you were you were over seven figures by three years, right? Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So I'm curious, what would you? And of course, you were, mentioned you were really good at the skills that were needed for that, and you felt really confident that it was a good fit for you. Is there anything else that you would attribute to growing a business as fast as you did that you felt was really important to the success of it? I think that success, this, our success is a little bit, it's complicated. I think like anyone's success is probably complicated. Um, I think that, that, you know, an important element that that our business had from the start was the ability to was, I guess, from the start, my ability to sell the trips, put the trips together and sell the trips. And, you know, when you're talking about, you know, seven figures or whenever you're, when you're talking about just numbers in general, I mean, you know, we're kind of towards the upper end of the market, not kind of, I mean, we are towards the upper end of the market. So, you know, a trip can cost $20,000, 30, 40, 50, 100. So, you know, if you do the math, it doesn't take that many trips to hit certain revenue numbers. 
So the challenges are to make it sustainable, you know, growing the team, um, you know, making sure that clients are really taken care of. Um, I mean, not that not that selling the trips isn't a challenge. That is a challenge too, and also growing our sales team and and scaling that and making sure that each of our salespeople, you know, has also the the skills to do that. Um, so there are so many challenges, but I feel like we started from a position of, and I'll tell you what, I mean, I actually designed this, you know, on the back of a napkin, you know, I was like, okay, <laughs> so, cause I didn't, I didn't really know anything about starting a business and I completely underestimated things, you know, like what, you know, overhead might look like and what labor expenses might look like. So it was very flawed, but it was still a good thought experiment where basically I said, okay, let's say that I want to earn this much. And let's say that industry average margins are 20 or 25 or 30 or 35%. You know, we can work with different assumptions, but, you know, knowing the travel industry, I knew it was going to be somewhere around that. So then I said, okay, well then how much, how much do we need to sell to make that money? So I came up with the number that seemed like reasonable at the time. I don't remember what the number was, but let's just say it was like a hundred thousand a month or something. So then I, so then I was just, I made a little list. I was like, okay, so these are like the, all the possible permutations of how you get to like a hundred thousand. It's like one times a hundred thousand, two times fifty thousand, three times thirty-three thousand, four times twenty-five, etc. Mm-hmm. You know, all the way to like, or we could do a hundred. trips. So then I looked at the napkin and I said, okay, where do I want to be? (laughs) Like I would much rather try to just sell one massive trip a month. Right. At least now, you know, maybe, but that's just, that's how I felt at that moment. I'm not even sure if I necessarily feel exactly the same way now, but so from there it was pretty obvious that, okay, let's try to go for like this part, this part of the market. And then how did you tap into that audience, Andreas? Like um, some of the tactics you use? I had to just envision what kinds of travelers are taking trips that cost this much money and what are they interested in and what's important to them and what's not important to them and what kind of language, what kind of sophistication do they expect? Um, so we actually started with a focus on ultra high net worth individuals. Okay. So like people who are taking private jets and who are hoping for 24 seven concierge and probably travel with a personal assistant. Um, and we, within a few months we realized not exactly the right fit for us. So the reason it wasn't the right fit was because it, it didn't actually feel natural for for us, it didn't quite feel like the right market fit, just linguistically and just ex- from experience, didn't feel like, it was harder to communicate with this audience. So then we zeroed in on the people that we felt really, really connected to, which are people that are very independent travelers. They're very experienced travelers. They've had a lot of success in life, whatever they do, whether they're professionals or entrepreneurs. 
And the only reason they're reaching out for a com- reaching out to a company like ours is because, you know, they they just already know that working with a company like ours is going to make it easier for them and probably going to give them, you know, some better experiences than if they tried to figure it all out on their own. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not not because they can't do it. It's more because they're seeing us as kind of a tool, you know, to hack, you know, a better trip, you know, and the money is not so much of an issue, but they're not, I guess they're not needy. You know, they're, they're extremely laid back and self-sufficient people. Um, they just want like a partner who's going to not, not bullshit them and just say, you know, this is what you need. You don't need this. Honestly, that's a waste of money. This guide is amazing. You know, that hotel is overrated, etc. Um, and, those people are so easy to talk to for me. So basically all I did was translate that into content marketing of, Hey, I'm writing all of these posts for you. And so when the right person finds them, they feel connected immediately. And then, you know, if all goes well, then they contact us. If not, then they just get some really good free information. But I mean, our entire strategy was just write a ton of blog posts that are directed exactly at these people. A ton meaning rough, uh, rough estimate. Um, to date, well, a ton is actually not that many. So, <laughs> okay. uh, on average, we've done about two a month. Although I'm not sure if that average is correct because we've done about eighty-five or ninety total. Okay, and really high quality, great piece, great articles, right? Yeah, for the most part, I would say about 90% are really high quality, super in-depth. I would say 10% are pretty good, but almost all of them are, you know, hopefully like the best post on the internet about that topic or, or one of the best. Yeah. And then what's your content process for creating this material? I imagine you probably started out writing it. Um, when you began, are you still writing them or do you have, uh, one writer that's taking care of it or what's that look like for you guys? I would say this is one of the processes that has definitely not been automated or systematized at all yet. Um, I mean, if, if we have 85 or 90 posts, I probably wrote about 70 of them, um, and we do actually have some great writers that we're working with, but I'm still writing some as well. Mm-hmm. And I would like to get to the point where I'm not writing them anymore. Not because I don't like writing them, but only because I think that perhaps my time could be used in more and effective you, places. But I don't know. Yeah, that makes sense. Totally. Do you, do you have any tips on how to, once you put those, that content out there, how to get them ranked and make sure that your target audience is, is zooming into those and, and seeing your content? It's called super unofficial lo-fi SEO. I mean, basically, (laughs) okay, so... I mean, I'll, I can give you some real tips, but they're so obvious to me that they don't seem like they don't seem like real tips. But okay, okay. So let's say we're writing a blog post on the best sushi shops in Tokyo. Mm-hmm. So it's very unscientific, 
I mean, I will I will think about the title for quite a while. Not before writing the article, but in the process of writing the article, I'll probably make a list of ten possible titles. You know, Tokyo's best sushi shops, the best sushi shops in Tokyo. You know, sushi in Tokyo, the best shops. You know, I'll make I'll make a huge list of all, all those while I write the post, um, and just kind of save them. And then while I'm writing the post, I'll, I'll also where it makes sense, you know, I'll use the word sushi, I'll use the word Tokyo, but not to a point that's artificial because it has to actually feel and sound natural. Otherwise, it's going to be a real turnoff. And I'm guessing Google will find a way to penalize it also. Um, so it's like keyword stuff, but don't keyword stuff, you know? So eventually, you know, once you've written the article, the other thing is to make sure that the headlines are very, very helpful. So the H1s, the H1s are the actual title of the article. The H2s are the headlines that you'll see within the article. And I feel like the H2s are extremely important. So, you know, I, I always try to make sure that if if it's natural, include keywords that will help Google figure out what the article is about. But also keep in mind that it's actually more important to help your viewers scan the article to see if it's interesting for them and or to be able to kind of zero in on the part of the article that they want to look at. So you should actually be trying to help your viewers before you're trying to help Google, but you should be thinking about both of them. Um, you know, beyond that, definitely make sure that your alt tags on your images are clearly labeled. And again, not keyword stuffing, but you know, what is the article about and what is the image? And you can find a ton of resources online on how to label alt images. And then at the end, I'll always, you know, do I don't I don't use keyword tools at all because I just I'm not I'm not an SEO expert. But I mean, this I'm, I'm sure there's like hundreds of SEO people who might listen to this who are going to say that what I'm about to say is absolutely foolish. But <laughs> you know. So let's say my two finalists for a title are Tokyo's best sushi shops and the best sushi shops in Tokyo. I will actually plug each of those into Google and see which one gets more results, and then I will just use that one. That's smart. Um, that's, that's really smart. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Well, <laughs> I'm not sure if it even works. I mean, you know, it might be hurting us, but those are those are the tactical things I do. But the essential thing that we do is actually write an amazing post. So, right. you know, not to say that the writing is amazing, but thinking about the audience, thinking about the people who are looking for it and the people that we would like to be found by, if they found it and if they read it, you know, how are they going to feel? That's really, you know, I've had SEO experts on the, the show before, multiple ones. And, they dive into their business and their tactics, but that was really basic and clear, good advice. And I actually learned some stuff that I'm going to apply to my podcast post because, um, I think like it's easy to get in the lost, get really lost in, in the world of content marketing and SEO because there's a lot that encompasses with it. Right. But those were really just good, basic tips and it's good to know that they're working for you and I think I'll apply those to some of mine so yeah and and we were very lucky that this was just 
to the best of our abilities, you know, not working with any SEO people, Mm -hmm. just doing some research. But it's worked to the extent that, you know, within, within two and a half months, we got our first booking from Australia, you know, from people who had just found us looking for, they were kind of searching for hotels in Japan and they had stumbled across our website. And this was, you know, very soon after launch. Yeah. And at this point, get we get quite a bit of, you know, website visitors. And so I, I wish I could, I wish, you know, one day I would love to have an SEO expert that I trust, <laughs> you know, come and look at what we're doing and tell us what we're doing right and wrong. But I guess our little kind of hacked system is, is doing okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. So we're going to move on to, I think, one, fi- one or two final questions or topics. I want, to, I want to ask you about building a service and events business. I, as you know, run events also. And for me, they're a lot of work, but I'm personally involved in them, right? So I'm the host and the, not mentor, but the facilitator for these events. And they're challenging, man. They are a lot of hard work. There are a lot of emotional highs and lows for me personally. They are a lot of fun and very rewarding and fulfilling, but at the same time, draining. And so I know you're not, I mean, you're personally involved in the business, obviously, but you're not going on the trips with people. You're setting everything up so that they have an amazing time. So in a lot of people, entrepreneurs that we know, they tend to shy away from a service or events-based business because I guess the human aspect, and and it can be a lot to handle sometimes. So they want to create products where they're just bringing in products and shipping them out. So I'm curious about your experience with Boutique Japan and running a service and events-based business. And if you could give any tips or share any info on managing people and services and events to keep your balance with yourself and the team and to and just any other tips that you think is valid for other entrepreneurs running businesses like this that would help them yeah it's definitely you know like you said it's it's humans are more complicated than you know pdfs (laughs) so (laughs) um so i think a fundamental thing is to work with the kinds of clients that you actually want to work with Mm -hmm. and i think that that that's kind of an obvious point in a way but i think it might be overlooked also so that even goes back to what i was saying earlier about how you know it didn't quite feel natural to work with the private jet set now i have nothing against the private jet set <laughs> but even the fact that i'm calling them the private jet set probably shows that i don't even i'm not very familiar with this group of people <laughs> it's just not my it's not my people so i think that for me at least it was not not just easier but more natural to want to work with people that i thought were cool and that I might actually want to be friends with. Um, 
and it's turned out to be that way, you know, like I've met a lot of our clients and I'm friends with some of them and a lot. And even the ones that I'm not good friends with, they're fun to work with. So I think that makes it a lot easier. And I'm guessing that you also have a similar experience because yeah, in your business, you're working with colleagues and other people that maybe you want to learn from. And so I feel the same way. Um, I think another thing that's important, which, which, um, which we do is to have, have some kind of boundaries. So for example, on weekends, we turn on our out of office. Um, now that doesn't mean that none of us work, you know, if it's an emergency, we'll absolutely work. And if it's a really busy time, then, you know, some of us might be doing a little bit of extra work and I'm kind of infamous for, yeah, like I'll work. (laughs) Um, but anyway, it's not required. Um, having those boundaries, you know, not, not, not having clients expect you to be available 24 seven, if it's not an emergency, I think is important. So for us, it's important to be available in, in case of emergency or something urgent, because obviously people are on the ground in a different country. So that's, that's a different factor. But apart from that, um, you know, we kind of set expectations with people and, they, they accept it. It's reasonable. They're reasonable people. Um, you know, does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Uh, Andreas, I want to ask you if you could give two or three tips or must do's on building a seven figure location, independent business for the listeners. Um, yeah, easy. The first one is sell. (laughs) You need revenue. So if you can't sell, learn how to sell or hire a salesperson. Um, I mean, that's that's essential. And, you know, selling doesn't have to... I, I know there are actually still, even to this day, are so many, even entrepreneurs who think that selling is something kind of intimidating or challenging. But if you think about it as it's just being confident in, in what you are offering and then helping people get it, you know, hopefully that's not as, you know, unappetizing. The second one is to take amazing care of, of your customers and clients, mm. you know, because I think this is actually another thing that I learned from um, the tropical MBA people, the concept of inside out marketing, which I think is similar to referral marketing. It's just the idea that if you take amazing care of your customers and clients, that, that can lead to exponential growth. And just apart from that, it's actually really pleasurable to just do such an amazing job. Like it's it's rewarding, you know. Yeah. So, I think that's essential. Like, don't never just be focused on sales. It's it's kind of counterintuitive, but the most important person should be the people who have already booked your service. You know, take care of them first before new new prospects. Good, um, good tip. And then third, I would say is bring bring on amazing people because if you really you know if you want to do the solo thing then that's cool too but if you're trying to grow a slightly bigger business or a much bigger business eventually you're going to have to bring on people and i know that for solopreneurs and some entrepreneurs and like some bedroom entrepreneurs that can seem really unappealing because people are messy like we said (laughs) yeah but if you change your mindset around it and realize there are amazing people who want to work for you. If you actually have something good to offer, 
it's yeah, that's the best thing you can do. What would you say is the difference? And maybe that might be the answer, but what do you would you say the difference is between a six figure mindset and a seven figure mindset? Uh, I don't really know. I mean, that's a tough one, but I do think that I know that when I started, I never thought that bringing people on was part of the plan because in my mind, it just seemed really complicated and unpleasant to have to deal with even more people. Um, and after my first successful hire, my mind was blown because I realized, <laughs> wow, there are some amazing, brilliant people out there. And it's a pleasure to work with them. And they're better at you know this or that aspect of the of the role than you are. So after, I don't know, after, I mean, that changed everything for me having a successful hire. So I wish that on any, you know, entrepreneurs having a successful hire, it really changes everything. Yeah. makes sense. All right, my friend, we are going to wrap up there. Andreas, if the listeners want to reach out to you and learn more about Boutique Japan, where's the best place they can do that at? Well, the, the most, the most actually active social media um, that we're on is Instagram, so at Boutique Japan, and definitely our website as well. Just check out our blog, sign up for the newsletter, or just you know contact me there. Um, yeah, those are the best places. Amazing. And I want to give you a huge thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for sharing your tips and your tricks and all your wisdom with us, Andreas. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. Really, really awesome. It was fun. And listeners, we're going to wrap up there. Thank you guys for coming on the show, and we'll see you all on the next episode. Goodbye, everybody. The Entrepreneur House is a business accelerator for established entrepreneurs. Imagine spending a period of time with other successful entrepreneurs working together and growing your business. Day-to-day, -day you interact with other driven and smart business people. Spending an extended period of time around them alters your business and your mentality around business. Goals are set, business grows, new partnerships develop, greater profit margins are achieved, the productivity skyrockets for the attendees, and you'll get to have an incredible adventure while doing it. Be sure to check out the details at theentrepreneurhouse.com as soon as possible. For those of you that are interested and have some questions, don't hesitate to contact us, theentrepreneurhouse.com. We will respond as soon as we can. For now, saludos from somewhere in the world.